few years ago, there was a journalist by the name of A.J. Jacobs who undertook a year-long experiment to apply literally as many of the commands found in the Bible as he possibly could. He then wrote a book after that, and he entitled the book, Year of Living Biblically. And so he committed himself to not wearing clothes with more than one type of thread found in them. He practiced Sabbath religiously. He didn't trim the edges of his beard, and he refrained from gossiping or slandering anybody in his midst, and he said that was quite the challenge being a journalist. He even committed to applying Deuteronomy chapter 25, which states that if two men get in a fight and one of the men's wives grabs the other man's private parts, her hand shall be cut off. Now he said he was committed to that, therefore he didn't get in any fights while there were women around. At the end of this year though, he wrote this in his book. He said, it is impossible to do everything written in the law. Everyone must pick and choose. The important thing is picking and choosing the right things. I think he's right. We all pick and choose. In fact, I've noticed, Emmanuel Faith, that none of you have, as parents have taken your disobedient kids out into the street and stoned them to death. Bravo. Picking and choosing right already. Good work. But I think Jacobs is identifying something that we all sort of know about the scriptures, but have trouble putting language to. And it's that this is a very complicated collection of ancient writings. It's a challenge to apply this book rightly. Did you know that This collection of writings that we call the Bible has been used both to defend and abolish slavery, both. It's been used to oppress and elevate women, both. It's been used to accentuate and close racial divide. It's done both. And the people doing all of those things have pointed to verses in the Bible to back them up. So how do we read this book rightly? And some of you are in this space today and you've heard some people talk about the Bible and some of the things that they said maybe just didn't sound all that right to you. Some of the way that they applied the things found in the Bible maybe just didn't sit quite right with you. Can I encourage you? If that's you this morning, one, I'm so glad you're here today. And my encouragement would be, don't allow bad theology and bad application to lead you away from a beautiful Jesus. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to wrestle with, how do we live under this um, authority from God that we call the scriptures in a way that honors this season that we're in that we call Christmas, because Christmas actually has something to say to us about how we apply the scriptures to our life. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you open to John chapter one. It's on page 903 in the pew Bible that's on the rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, use that one or click there, swipe there, however you want to get there. I want you to have the text in front of you. 
This passage in John chapter 1 is magnificent. You'll remember if you've been with us over the last few weeks that John, Jesus' friend, has claimed that Jesus is the maker, the creator, and the sustainer of everything that we see around us. Nothing came into being without his word. He's also the one who redeems and saves and calls us to become children of God. And in verse 14, John begins to invite us to dwell on the incarnation and the implications thereof. Here's what he writes. And the word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. File that away, we'll come back to it. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through whom? Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. See, here's what John is arguing. John's arguing that when Jesus stepped into history, he changed everything, including the way we read the Bible, including the way that we read the law of Moses. Grace and truth have shown up, and it's changed everything. Listen to the way that Luke records this. He says this, the law and the prophets, which are your Old Testament. That's the Bible's shorthand for saying, Your old covenant, Old Testament, the law and the prophets were until John, until John the baptizer stepped onto the scene and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But since then, since John showed up, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Everyone forces his way into it. Here's John's point. Incarnation initiated new interaction between God and humanity. The birth of Jesus means there's a new beginning for the way that we relate to God. Let me say it like this. The gospel is good news because it's new news. Something has been transformed. So John sets up this dichotomy um, that before Jesus, it was law. And now that Jesus has come, it's grace and truth. Which begs the question, what do these three words mean? Because they're significant, yes? Yeah, one of you said, yeah, I'm taking it. I'm going with it. Um, Law would have been the way that the ancient Israelites interacted with God. When they talked about the law, they typically talked about the first five books of the scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law was given to them for a very specific reason. In fact, there were three things that were important about the law. Number one, it was only given to the nation of Israel. And it was only meant for the nation of Israel. Just like people outside of the United States don't follow the rules and the laws of the United States, people outside of Israel weren't intended to follow the laws of Israel. It was given to them, number one. Number two, it was given to them after 400 years of slavery. So all they knew under the Egyptians was oppression 
and tribalism. But what God said was, I want to form a people around love and justice that would be a light to all the nations. And so he gives them the law to instruct them on how to do this. But number three, and this is really, 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 really important. The law was always intended to be temporary. It was never intended to be a once and for all time declaration about the way that we interact with God. In fact, the Apostle Paul picks this up in his letter to the Galatians. Here's what he writes in chapter 3, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian, say these three words with me, church, until Christ came. That's Christmas, right? That's incarnation. The law was our guardian until Christmas in order that we might be justified by faith. So here's what he's saying. Some translations will use the word, instead of guardian, they'll use the word tutor. That the law sort of held us under its wing and led us along. And that was the center point of the Israelite community until Jesus comes. And you can continue to read in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, When Jesus comes, the community centers not around the law anymore, but around faith in Jesus. That's the center point of everything now. So Andrew Peterson, a great singer, Christian singer, songwriter in his album, Behold the Lamb, has a song in there entitled, So Long, Moses. The first few lyrics of the song go like this, So long, Moses, hello, promised land. It's been a long, long road, but your people are home. So long, Moses. Is he right? I mean, can we say that? Should we say that? Does something in us feel a little bit wrong? So long, Moses? I think N.T. Wright gives a good picture and description of what Andrew Peterson states and what the scriptures apply for us also. Here's what he says. He says, when travelers sail across a vast ocean and finally arrive on the distant shore, they leave the ship behind and continue over land. Not because the ship was no good or because their voyage had been misguided, but precisely because both the ship and the voyage had accomplished their purpose. During the new dry land stage of their journey, the travelers remain the same people who made that voyage in the ship. So here's what he's saying. This is, look at this as a two-part journey. Um, uh, B.C. and A.D. B.C. under law. That was the ship as it were. Now, now, we live under grace and truth. Now, contrary to popular opinion, grace and truth are not in opposition to each other. Please hear me on that this morning. Uh, oftentimes we think of grace as the soft side of God, God's sort of kindness to us, uh, unmerited favor given to us in Jesus, and then truth is like the hard side of God, and somehow he's got to balance both. Grace and truth are not in any way, shape, or form in opposition to each other. When we think about grace, we often think about the grace of God that saves us, and indeed, his grace does save us. You can see Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 on that, that, that by faith through grace, we have been made alive in Christ. Amen. It's great news. It's 
great news. But for many of us, our idea of grace ends with salvation. And I'd like to push back on that and say, it's not smaller than that, but it is way bigger than that. Because you're not only saved by grace, you are called to grow in grace every single day. Grace isn't something that just gets you in the door of the Christian community. It's something that carries you every single step of the way. As Dallas Willard so brilliantly put, saints burn grace like a 747 on takeoff. I think his definition of grace was one of the best I've ever heard. Here's what he says. He says, grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. Certainly salvation would apply to that. But 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 would say, grow in grace. Grow in your ability to take hold of this power that God is showering down on you. You're never done with grace. In fact, will you turn to the person next to you and say, you're never done with grace. You're never done with grace. Some of you said it too emphatically. We'll have a time of repentance later on, but... But here's the second part. Remember, we have law on one side and then grace and what on the other? Truth. Truth. Truth is actually pretty simple. Truth is simply reality. It's the way that the world actually works. Truth is what you run into when you find out you're wrong. See, you can say, you can say that gravity isn't a real thing and you can climb up onto the top of a three-story building and you can make that declaration and jump off. But I can assure you when you hit the ground, you're going to find out you were wrong. You were wrong. It's true every single time. Now, here's the deal. Truth is not in opposition to the law. It's just simply bigger than the law. The law was given to a certain people for a certain time. Truth is true period. It's true for all time and it's true for all people. It's universal and it's cosmic. And so check out what John's doing here. This is so awesome. John is saying, we refuse to keep Jesus in a box that sequesters him to being a religious teacher that functions only in one sect of Judaism. That, that's sort of his category. He's Banding him to say, no, 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 no. Jesus is the son of the most high God and he is teaching us what it looks like to live in truth, in line with the reality that he knows well because he created it. So we might say it like this. Grace and truth are God's empowering presence to align us with reality that enable us to walk in freedom. See, the law set up hedges to keep us confined, which was a good thing. It was necessary. But grace and truth, instead of keeping us confined, they keep us aligned with who God is, with what God's doing, and the way that God is active in our world and in our lives. And John would say, that grace is showered on you. Grace upon grace, God's activity, God's presence, God's power, grace upon grace upon grace in your life right now. Right now. Now, this concept can be sort of hard to wrestle with. And a lot of us go, well, what does that look like lived out in real life? 
You wonder that? Okay, what does grace and truth look like in real life? I'm so glad you asked that. Because if you flip over just a few chapters in John's gospel, he's going to tell a story that paints a picture for it. In fact, would you flip over there? John chapter 8, I think is one of the best pictures we have of what it looks like to live in grace and truth. Some of you may have heard this story before. It's a story about a woman who's caught in the act of adultery and brought to Jesus. And the reason I'm choosing this story is because it specifically references Moses and the law. You can follow along on the screens if you don't have your Bible flipped open there. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, reads like this. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, this is sort of in the middle of this teaching session that Jesus had, they interrupted and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of whom? Moses. So here we go. Um, Hint and a wink back to John chapter 1. Uh, law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? See, they're trying to trap him. They, they essentially say to him, hey, Jesus, how do you apply this book? Jesus, how do you interpret the old covenant, the old testament? Jesus, are you a Bible-believing Christian? I mean, the Bible says it. You should believe it. That settles it. What are you going to do, Jesus? And they have good right to ask that question. All you have to do is flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22, and you will find the command in black and white. If a man is found lying with a woman, with an, um, lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. You can read on and find out that that's a death by stoning. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Really, really clear. I mean, sort of clear, right? They they forgot to apply part of it. I mean, where's the man? The law commands stone them both. This is for free this morning. But oftentimes the people who interpret the law do so in a way that makes them look best. But Jesus, what are you going to do? The Bible says it. Do you believe it? And if so, does that settle it? See, Jesus continued. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. We're not exactly sure what Jesus wrote in the dirt. I mean, some people think that he started to write some of the sins that these Pharisees and scribes struggled with. Other people think that maybe he wrote one of his favorite passages from the book of Hosea, which says that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. But we don't know what he wrote. We only know the effect of what he wrote. (laughs) That all of these men holding stones in their hands, started to drop them and started to walk away. Regardless of how he got there, and and we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt because we would have made a law out of what Jesus wrote in the dirt. 
So it's intentionally ambiguous. So we have to wrestle with the text a little bit. But here's what we know. We know that whatever Jesus wrote caused every single one of these men to walk away. And I think it caused them to walk away because whatever he wrote revealed that they could all be on the other side of the stones for one reason or another. After all, the wages of sin is death. Not some sin, but any sin and all sin. And as James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point, has become guilty of all of it. It's a pretty high standard. John continued. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing there. Grace and truth in living color. See, Jesus refuses. Jesus refuses to be a part of anyone's agenda, not even people who try to use the Bible to get him on their side. He's really clear. I have come to be, a, to be a person who brings from God grace and truth into your life. He has come to bring hope to the hurting, rescue to the imprisoned, and healing to the sick. And in doing so, he unequivocally declares that the living, breathing, walking, talking word of God trumps the law of Moses. So long, Moses. Hello, promised land. So what do we do with this? How do, how do we become the community of faith that applies this teaching of Jesus in our lives and in our time? Really glad you asked that, okay? Few things that stand out to me. Number one, if you read through this text, what you're gonna see is the Pharisees, they bring this woman to Jesus and in verse three, you can see that they talk about this woman. They bring her to Jesus and they say to Jesus, she's been caught in the act of adultery. What do you say, Jesus? But when Jesus begins to address her, he doesn't talk about her. He talks to her. In verse 10, he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? See, the Pharisees want to discuss her sin, but Jesus wants to look in her eyes. The Pharisees want to label her by her actions, but Jesus wants to dig into the depths of her soul. The law wants to tell her where she should be. You shouldn't have done that. It was wrong. Grace and truth meet her where she actually is. And if we're going to be people who live in grace and truth, we must trust that God meets us where we are and as who we are, not as we should be. The law says change and be accepted. Jesus says, I accept you. Now you get to change. I mean, maybe a, a, a picture would be helpful. The law would be akin to you going to the beach one day and seeing a red flag on the lifeguard stand with signs that say, riptide. Do not go swimming. 
Even lifeguards position to say, that's not really, really not a good idea. But you decide to go anyway. And you go for a swim and you start getting pulled out and you're drowning. And the law from the shore yells, I told you not to go. There's a riptide. It's going to take you away. It's a red flag day. What are you thinking? But grace and truth come swimming out for you. They put a life vest over your neck and they pull you into shore. They meet you where you are, not where you should be. Friends, this is Christmas. This is what we celebrate in incarnation. And not a God who says, this is where you should have been, but a God who says, I'll meet you exactly where you are right now in the brokenness, in the failure, in the pain, in the regret. I will meet you as you are, not as you should be. I think that's a word for somebody here this morning. You walk in these doors maybe every single weekend and you hear a lot of shoulds. And I want you to hear today above all that Jesus meets you exactly as you are not as you should be. Listen to the way that this continues, though. He stood up and he said to this woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And do you imagine this woman going, I guess no one, no one. And Jesus said to her, I mean, imagine these words. Imagine these words over, over your deepest failure, over your deepest public failure if you're this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, what's really interesting is that both the law and Jesus confront her sin. They just do it in completely different ways. See, the law condemns. It was its role, and it wasn't a bad thing. But Jesus convicts. And those are two very, very different things. The Spirit brings about conviction, not condemnation. And it can be such a, a small, nuanced distinction that we can have a hard time recognizing those two voices. But you need to hear this morning that the enemy wants to condemn you. Jesus wants to convict you. And the voice of condemnation might sound a little bit like this. I mean, imagine a fictitious scene, I'm sure, for all of you. But imagine that you have lashed out in anger on people that you care about. Okay. The voice of the enemy, the voice of condemnation, will say something like this. You're such a failure. No one would ever want to be your friend. You're not going to be the kind of mom or the kind of dad that you should be, ever. I can't believe you did that again. You're messed up. You're hopeless. I mean, anybody relate to some of those voices? But the voice of conviction sounds more like this. That was wrong. You should go and apologize and make things right. That's possible, you know. And then, let's work together on letting go of your anger that's killing you and the people that you love. There's a better way. There's a better way. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they want naming this woman's sin to be her end, quite literally. Jesus wants it to be her beginning. Oh, come on, church, that's really good. 
He wants to say, okay, let's name that and let's step out of it and let's step into the life that I've designed you to live. And there are two different gospels at play here. There are two different ways of seeing and interacting with God. There's a law and there's grace and truth. There's a moral gospel and there's a Jesus gospel. And the moral gospel says, go and sin no more and then there will be no condemnation. But that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, there is no condemnation, therefore go and sin no more. You are free, he would say, to walk out of the sin that's killing you. As the apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law. So long, Moses. But you're under grace. Hello, Jesus. See, both the law and Jesus address this woman's sin, but they do so in different ways and for different intentions. Does Jesus disagree with the law? I mean, let me put it this way. Is Jesus pro-adultery? Not a trick question, Emmanuel Faith. No, not at all. He's the creator of marriage. He designed it. He knows that it functions best in the bounds of monogamy and fidelity and covenant. He is in no way, shape, or form supporting this woman's actions. He's saying that he wants to free her from her actions that are killing her rather than wanting to kill her for her actions. And that's a totally different view about the same thing. You might say it like this. Jesus doesn't disagree with the intent of the law. He disagrees with the effectiveness of it to bring about righteousness in life. And so in this story, what we see is we get an understanding. And under grace and truth, here's what we're called to. We're called to understand that grace works towards restoration, not retribution. It aims towards healing, not punishment. It aims towards freeing you from your sin that's killing you rather than killing you for your sin. This is always the way of Jesus. And it's the way of grace upon grace upon grace and truth in your life and in mine. I I love, friends, that we are a church that's for restoration, that we have things like set free for people caught in the bounds of addiction with hurts, habits, and hangups. I love that we have things like divorce care. I love that we have grief share. I love, and I want us to be more and more and more a church that says we do not want to heap condemnation. We want to be part of healing. We want to be part of hope. We want to be part of restoration and life and grace and truth. Friends, this is the way of the manger. This is the way of Jesus. And this is the way that Jesus has called us to live. So the question first is, will you receive it? Will you dig up the most disappointing, most regretful, most I wish it could take it back types of things in your life? And envision Jesus putting his arm around you, not with a stone in the other hand to kill you, but to say, there's a better way. Repent and enter my kingdom. Life is available to you. And then, and then, 
would you be a part of helping us more and more become the kind of community of faith that holds that out to Escondido and to the end of the world? After all, after all, living out grace and truth can be summarized in one simple word. It's the same word that the early followers of Jesus said summarized the entire law. Say it with me, church. Love. So Jesus, we pray that you would make us into those kinds of people that we would receive it first from you, your grace and your truth, and that then you would release us to live it out in Escondido, North County, and to the very ends of the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen and amen.